Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and we are always happy to have Guy Talk, which is a uh, hour-long program today, which is going to involve you asking questions. So if you have a question that you maybe came up in your Bible study this week, or maybe you've had a discussion with a friend over coffee about a passage in Scripture or a topic you would like us to discuss, we would love to hear from you. So all you do is text the question over to 877-933-933. 2484. Say that again a little slower. 877-933-2484. Now my power panel today is Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Paris. Gentlemen, welcome. Always good to be here, Bill. Thank you. Good afternoon, Bill. You both said that like you meant it. Most of the time we do. That's nice. That's (laughs) nice. You know, we make over the course of our life a zillion decisions, right? Some are small and mundane, like what'd you have for breakfast, Tom? Uh, this morning for breakfast, I had oatmeal. Nice. How about you, Jeff? <laughs> I had puffins. I didn't even know puffins. cereal. Oh. <laughs> All right. Now we can move up the, the, the ladder just a little bit. So when you uh, d- were deciding on college, uh, did you have more than one choice, Jeff? Um, I did. I actually... Knew that I was going to, I went to Iowa State University and I knew I was going to go there, but I looked at several universities. So I, yes, I did have a choice. Okay. Was it down between, so you were decided on Iowa State, but was there another one that was close? And, mm, no. Okay. Not, not even a close second. Interesting. But, okay. So yeah. you had made that decision too. Now, had you made another decision and d- did something other than Iowa State, the trajectory of your life might have been a little different. You never know. But you meet different people, you have different experiences and different stories to tell. Exactly. And it always happens that way. Yeah. The you Lord's still involved f- in all of it, but yeah, he, right. he moves through that. And you were uh, film school? Is that what you I were? Was going, I went to the University of Toledo, okay. got into degree in education, then I was going to California to make motion pictures. Gotcha. And then, of course, these are all decisions. And like, the ultimate decision is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Mm-hmm. Who is Jesus to you? That's the big question in life. That's the most important one. That is the biggest. And you know what? I just did a funeral the other day and had a nice crowd there. And Bill, that's exactly what I presented to the folks who list, who were listening, you know, telling them what the scriptures say, but telling them about my experience with the dying. And then the question is, or what I tried to put before them, is today is your dress rehearsal. All of us will die. Are you prepared to meet Jesus? And that's the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. So if someone were to say to you, what does it mean for you to be a Christian, Tom Parrish, what would you say? It would mean that I have come to the point of realizing I'm not God. I can't make all the good decisions. I do a lot of things that are hurtful and painful. And I have surrendered to the blood of Jesus Christ and him dying for me on the cross. And now with Jesus, uh, I have a whole new life and a whole new purpose for living and eternal life. So you were once alienated from God. Do I have that right? Yes. And you've been reconciled how? I was reconciled to the Lord through a variety of means, but the, the biggest one was my mother-in-law who kept asking me after I married Jan, you know, do you guys love Jesus? And we kept saying we go to church. 
And she said, that's not enough. You need to love Jesus. Mm. And she drove me so crazy, I began to look into it and spend a lot of time in the Gospel of John and elsewhere in the New Testament until I finally realized he is the one and only. And before him, I bowed and still bow. Yeah, awesome. How about you, Jeff Redorn? I agree with all of what Pastor Tom said. We are alienated from God in our natural state. Uh, We uh, need to answer that most important question, who do men say that I am, is what Jesus asked his disciples in Caesarea Philippi one day. And they said, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. On this side of the cross, we now know that that Christ died for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might receive the righteousness of God or be made the righteousness of God. So we've now been reconciled with him. We are at peace with him. Him. We have been united with him. He's forgiven us, made us holy, and given us his Holy Spirit that now dwells within us. So, uh, yes. So, I'm looking at people, and I'm in conversations, and I'll I'll hear people say, well, you know, I, I'm as good as the next person. I mean, so why would I not be welcomed into heaven? This is the idea that God grades on a curve, and he doesn't. <laughs> if you look at his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he says all these things about, you know, you've heard that it's say the, the, the word says this, but I tell you this. And he makes several contrasts. And if you happen to be listening to Jesus that day or reading his sermon out of the Bible, you might go, yeah, you know, I've got this whole I'm not angry with my brother thing down pretty good. And I don't do that. And I'm pretty good at that. But then Jesus says this, be perfect, therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. And any rational person is going to say, well, all right, I give up. I can't be perfect. Mm -hmm. So the standard is not better than your neighbor or better than the guy down the street, who's probably not all that good, to be honest. That's probably pretty easy to do. The standard is perfection. It's righteousness. And the only way to receive righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. I like that, and I love it when I get a chance to talk to people that claim to be agnostics uh, or even atheists, and they I've heard that very statement, Bill, that you brought up, you know, well, I'm, I haven't done anything really bad. I've been trying to be a good person. Certainly that's enough, and I usually am at a table with them because we're out to lunch or something, and I pull up my glass of water, and I say, how many drops are in this glass of water? You know, they guess thousands. I said, if I put one drop of arsenic in here, would you drink it? And well, no, no, that could kill me. Isn't it interesting? Because the Bible says you've broke one commandment, you've broken them all and are alienated from the Lord. So tell me, how are you doing with the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Is your life pristine on that one? And everybody would know that you love the Lord and serve him only? And I've had people look at me and say, that's not fair. And I've said, Pack, I understand. That's why I surrendered to Jesus, because I can't do it. Why do you think you can do it? You know, that's exactly what, Galatians says the law is to be used for today. The law is not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous, Paul writes. And I think it says to lead people to Christ. So when we use the law of God today, it points out uh, a person's sinfulness, that they aren't perfect. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they don't, they have other gods before them, all the rest of it. And so it points out their need for salvation, for reconciliation to a holy and perfect God. When I get to teach with young people, young adults, uh, both Christian and non-Christian, I I have kind of dropped the word sin in the very beginning because everybody kind of dismisses that word. But I'll say to them, okay, 
tell me about your shame and guilt. How you doing? And I watch all these heads drop. 18, 19, 20-year-olds drop down like, I said, isn't that interesting? Because that's what the Bible calls sin. Because your shame and guilt is what's alienating you from the Lord and from his will. So you're as guilty of it as I am. And I always include myself. I never tell people how bad they are or anything else without including myself. Because I am. Without Jesus, I'm just as bad as everybody else out there. It's only Jesus that redeems me. All right. So Jeff, uh, Joyce from Iowa said, uh, you know, I always knew I liked Jeff Verdorn. Go Cyclones. <laughs> Go Cyclones. Is that is that the mascot for your college? That is. Yes, that is wow. the, the mascot of the Cyclones. So. <laughs> Two big schools in Iowa. So I just alienated the other half of Iowa, I know. probably more than half for the, the Hawkeyes, the <laughs> Iowa Hawkeyes. Thanks, so. thanks a lot, Jeff. There's all my <laughs> listeners dropping off on that from that side. All right. Here's a question. What's the difference between being religious and being spiritual? Well, in most cases, there isn't any difference, and that's the problem today because most people want to define spiritual one way and define being religious as following the rules, and spiritual as being, you know, aware of all the spiritual things that are going on out there. The Bible isn't really interested in either one of those terms as is much more interested in talking about the person of Jesus, that he is the Savior, and that true spirituality is surrendering your life to him and then literally loving your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so I hear these terms used a lot today, and I always listen closely. I give people plenty of time. And if I don't hear, finally, the ultimate statement, this is all about Jesus, then I'm, I know we're on a different path. You know, it's interesting because both of these words are in Scripture. Oh, yes, so they are. From a, from a scriptural viewpoint, religion and being religious, being spiritual are, are, are kind of biblical, but the world uses these words, I would argue, in an unbiblical way. Most of the time, religious systems, I like to describe religious systems or religion as man's attempt to reach God. In other words, what do I have to do? What are all the do's that I have to do to reach heaven, to reach paradise, to to make it to nirvana, to reach the higher state? And it's all based on me. True biblical Christianity is what God has done to reach us, namely to send his son Christ to die for our sins. Spirituality today is used in a lot of ways that like, like Tom was just describing. Oh, I'm spiritual, but the true spirit is the Spirit of God. So in John chapter 3, for example, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Our problem, what we were just talking about, we're alienated from God. We're spiritually dead, according to the Bible, and we need to be made spiritually alive. So I'm very spiritual, um, and, and because I've been made alive by the Spirit, the real, true Spirit of God. All right, we're going to take a break and come right back with lots more of this snappy guy talk. And if you have a question... Send it over on the text line, please, 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484. Now, I got some great questions coming in, and I want yours as well. Be right back. Okay, here's something exciting. When you sponsor a child with the Ministry One Child, you are linked with a boy or a girl who will know you by name and treasure the thought that you care. Most of them will pray for you daily. And if you write them, they'll write you too. 
the child you sponsor will receive not only educational assistance, but supplemental food, clothing, health care services, and opportunities for personal love and encouragement, and most of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cost is just $39 a month. That's just a little more than a dollar a day. You can't necessarily change the entire world, but what if you can change the world for one person? Sponsor a child now at MyFaithRadio.com. We are back with Guide Talk, or guys who talk, Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn is the power panel today. So we're always uh, excited to hear what questions you would like us to discuss. The text line is 877-933-2484. All right, this is kind of a longer question. This came from my wingman, Terry, so here we go. In Luke 23, verse 43... Jesus says to the thief on the cross, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What does Jesus mean by this exactly and why specifically use the word today? We've talked about this often. Jeff, I know you've got a lot of insight into this. I want to add to it, but I'll give you the first shot if you'd like it. I don't think we have Jeff. Jeff's gone. Yeah, he's gone for now. Oh, that's We'll get him back. Get back, Jeff. Basically what it is is that that word paradise, I looked it up in the original Greek, and it can be translated as paradise or a wonderful garden. Oh, kind of like the Garden of Eden. It is a peaceful place, a forest, animals, pleasant to be in, whatever. And so basically Jesus is saying to the thief on the cross, you know, this very day you'll be with me in that kind of a place. Now, how did Jesus then, you know, be dead for three days and rise from the dead. It is what do we get? In, what we get in pictures in the Bible are pictures of what the Lord's telling us, rather than always a motion picture. And the motion picture, we we want to know precisely what happens moment to moment. The Bible doesn't always do that, but it does say that when you know Jesus, you will be with Him. And today, from our perspective, you know, the moment you close your eyes when you die, you know, one day is as a thousand years. It could be, mm-hmm. but to you. You're only going to know it as today. Yeah, let me read a little bit more of the comment and the question, because the word paradise in that verse is used only two other times in yes, Scripture. it is. In 2 Corinthians 12, 3, when Paul writes, And I know this man was caught up into paradise, yep. whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And then Revelations 2, 7, He, wa- uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So there's the other two references. Was I wrong to assume the word paradise indicated heaven? Jeff, you with us? Uh, Not yet. He's not here. No. Uh, No, I don't think it's wrong to assume that. It's just there's not enough information to make it say that. So it's it's close. You know, when you talk about uh, the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and how long they were there, nobody knows. God created them and they were there. Uh, everybody thinks about that as a child or as a young adult and says, boy, that's a place I'd like to go to. Now, is that heaven? Well, it had the presence of the Lord, and it had everything Adam and Eve need, needed. And that's what Jesus says. Eternal life is knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it's much more about the relationship than it is the place. 
Mm-hmm. And when you know Jesus, you're in the right place. So in John 20, verse 17, when Jesus appears to Mary at the empty tomb, it says, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And he's, and the question is, which I assume meant Jesus had not yet ascended to heaven. Where did Jesus and the thief on the cross go immediately after their crucifixion, if not heaven where God, the Father, dwells. I think Jeff is back. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Oh, wonderful. Okay, I don't know what happened. So I was still connected, and so anyway. So Scripture describes a place before the resurrection of Jesus where both the righteous and the unrighteous went, and that place is called Hades in the in the Greek. It's called Sheol in the Hebrew. And this was the holding place of the dead, both the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead, prior to the cross. The righteous dead went to, quote-unquote, paradise or Abraham's bosom or in comfort. And so when Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, he meant today, as in the moment that we die, we will be in comfort in the comfort side of Hades together. That's where Jesus went for three days and three nights. So when he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He was describing Hades. Uh, so that's where they, they went. Now, when Jesus rose again and rose up to heaven, now he took all of those people that were on the good side or the comfort side of Hades with him up to heaven, which now the paradise of God is in heaven. Uh, so now when we die as believers, we go to quote unquote paradise, which is where Christ is, which is in heaven, the third heaven where Paul was caught. You read one of the verses from from Corinthians. Um, So that's where they went for three days and three nights. That's where Jesus went, but now he's ascended. It's interesting in John 20, really quick, um, Jesus says, "Don't, don't hold on to me. He's telling Mary, don't grasp on to me. And some make a, a deal that, well, he needs to go up to heaven first and so on. No, I think what Jesus is simply saying is that Mary thought he she had Jesus back. She thought that, okay, now he's alive again, and I have him back. Well, just a chapter before, he said, it's good that I go away to heaven, because unless I go away, then the Holy Spirit would not come down and be within you and have this born-again experience. So I think what Jesus is saying in John 20, verse 17 is, don't grasp onto me. I have to ascend to the Father, and that's a good thing because you're going to be born again after the Holy Spirit comes. You know, it's interesting. Jeff, you and I uh, and Bill have had the privilege of studying the Scriptures in depth. Not everybody has the time or the availability. We have. And I like to make charts just like you do. On this topic, I remember making a chart long time ago where it had the word paradise on it, it had the word heaven on it, um, you know, the John 17 passage about knowing Jesus and knowing the Father. And it's interesting, another word that should be up there right with this is the kingdom of God, because Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. And the point is, is that, as he says in John 5, the moment you believe in him, eternity has already begun, and you're already part of the kingdom of God, so that when we die— whether we go to paradise, however that works out, believers are somehow immediately in the presence of the Lord. And I like that, and that's what I'm looking forward to. 
Amen. Well done. Well done. All right. Lots of uh, questions are coming in. Wow. We have a lot to deal with, gentlemen. So keep your answers correct and brief. All right. (laughs) I'm here till midnight. (laughs) All right. Um, I understand we are to pray uh, to God in Jesus' name. Is it wrong then to ask angels and saints to pray for us as some denominations practice? I would not go there because the, the Bible does not give us any directive to do that. Okay. It says you're invited to pray, you know, you can pray directly to the Father and pray in Jesus' name. That's where the power is. And I think it's everything I've seen, everything I know for what it's worth. Uh, I often pray directly to Jesus because, as he told Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right. So <laughs> it's all in one. But there's no other directive I know of, at least among Protestants, in any scriptures we have that directs us to do that. Okay. I agree. I, you know, there's a scene in Revelation where John bows down to an angel that's giving him the vision, and the angel says, no, get up, John. I'm, exactly. I'm a fellow servant, just as you are. Pray to him. Look, as Christians, we have access to the throne of God. With We can approach his throne of grace with confidence. What more do we need? Mm-hmm. When I was in Bangladesh, my wife and I went to a village, and they had a women's group there. And these were women that were learning how to use money and things like that. Well, they were going to greet me, this big visitor from the United States, all right? So we come into this upper room, and there are about 15 women there, and this one woman has flowers. And he, the my missionary escort said, she wants to present you with these flowers. I said, great. So I took a step forward, and then she came over and literally threw herself at my feet. I mean, literally. Uh, hit the boards hard and laying down with her head on my feet. I've got to tell you, it was the strangest feeling I ever had in my life of unworthiness that I can express. Because once you understand who the Savior is, there's nobody else to go to. Yeah, You have Jesus. you got it all. When you talk about approaching the throne room, we, we can we can access God directly. I, I sometimes think of the uh, scenario at the White House you have to go back to John F. Kennedy because he was the last president that had little kids in yep. the White House. And little John John, I don't know, was he four? He could go running through the White House, run right into the Oval Office, yep. and he wouldn't have any trouble getting to his dad. None. Good illustration. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you you try to do that, Tom Parrish, and you're going to end up even, in a body bag. I can't even get by the gate to get in in the yeah. first place. I know. but Without the invitation You're not from even the supposed Lord. to try to touch the president. No. Uh, Not at all. President's son comes flying through the White House, past security, jumps right up into his dad's lap. I just, I love, that was a very sweet image. All right, here's another question. Is this this the same heart in these verses? If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, and the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I I think they are the same heart. I think what is being described here is not the heart, as in this muscle that pumps blood throughout the body. What it's really talking about is the seat of our decision-making. So in reality, I think it's describing our soul. So our soul is how we think, how we feel, where how we decide, are the decisions that we make that we started the the show with. That's done in our soul, and I think that's how we describe it. Sometimes we describe it, I feel in my gut, or I love you with all my heart. Some cultures, the seat of emotion is their liver. So it's, I don't know if they say, I love you with all my liver, 
I don't I don't know if that is actually a thing very, or not. But very romantic, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I said it. So so look, it's the heart is where we make decisions because we the soul is immaterial. So we try to place it in our body someplace, and that's mm-hmm. the kind of language that we use. So the first one says, if you believe in your heart, you will be saved. If you decide, if you believe, remember that. Greek word for believe is that wonderful Greek word, yeah. pistuyo. We're going to have to get back to that after the break, Jeff. I hate to interrupt because oh, you're on a roll, <laughs> but we'll be right back with lots more guy talk and us guys love you with all our livers. <laughs> it's the afternoon show. I certainly hope you're having a good afternoon, and I'm so glad you have decided to spend some time, a little time, a lot of time with us. It is Guy Talk today, or guys who talk, and they do such a nice job of talking. Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn is my power panel. So any questions you send over on the text line, we'll do our very best to respond to them, 877-933-2484. Let's just get back to this heart first, because Jeff, I did cut you off, and we're talking about uh, the heart in these verses. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then, of course, in um, Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Is it the same heart in these verses? It is. It's the same heart. So remember, when you're saved, you move from having this, what uh, actually Ezekiel calls the heart of stone, and he says, I will give you a new heart, an undivided heart. I'll put a new spirit in them, meaning Israel, but we already participate in that, and I will give them a heart of flesh. So we mm-hmm. get a, a new heart, and it's just the, it's the heart is our decision-making uh, uh, area. That's that's our soul. That's where we make decisions. So God calls us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And when you do that, you get a new heart. Nice. All right. Let's see. Can you um, ask your guests whether we should think of ourselves as three-part, body, soul, spirit, two-part, and what are the parts, or one part, and how to language that, and what are the implications? Tom Parrish, you go first. Well, Jesus talked about four parts, heart, mind, soul, and body. Now, how do you add that all up together? I don't know exactly. I mean, there are there are different persuasions on that. The point is, is that we are spiritual beings with an earthly experience who need the Savior because our own decision-making is pretty bad. And when we understand that, then I know I need all four parts, heart, mind, soul, and body, because otherwise— my old nature takes over, and I make pretty bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Jeff? Uh, Paul actually, I think, describes—this is a theological debate. Are we a three-part being or a two-part being? I don't know about the one part. I don't know a lot of people who believe we're one part, but clearly we have a body. Uh, in the Greek, that's the soma. Uh, mm-hmm. Clearly we have what we were just talking about, our heart, our soul, how we think, where our, where our emotions and decision-making rest. That's what Scripture calls your soul or your suke. And then I believe there's a third part, a spiritual part of us, uh, called your pneuma. And Paul, Paul mm-hmm. actually says, may your whole body, soul, and spirit kept, be kept blameless until the day of the Lord in Thessalonians. And so I believe in a trichotomous view of man, a three-part 
uh, view of man, not a dichotomous or two-part. Some don't make a distinction between the soul and the spirit. But I actually think it's it's kind of important because what died in Adam that day in the Garden of Eden when he fell, and I believe it was the spiritual part of Adam that died, and therefore what comes alive when we are born again and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, spirit gives birth to spirit, Jesus said to Nicodemus, that's the part of us that becomes alive when we are saved. Well done, Jeff Dorn. And Tom Parrish as well. Nicely done. All right. Uh, in Exodus, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Wouldn't that keep him from repenting? That's a strong word, harden. You know, we have uh, an earthly understanding that uh, the Lord forced Pharaoh into doing this. Uh, what really happened is that everything the Lord did through Moses and Aaron to try to reach Pharaoh and let my people go hardened Pharaoh's heart, hardened it in the sense that Pharaoh rebelled against the Lord and the Lord's will. So it is, you can say it that way, the Lord hardened his heart, but I wouldn't think of it so much in the process of the Lord, you know, no matter what Pharaoh did, he was predestined to be hard-hearted. He just simply would not surrender to the one true God. And think about your life and my life. How often is that true? I don't think the Lord's out to make me a sinner or make me a bad person or make me hard toward other people. He usually is trying to reach me to change me. My problem is, am I going to yield to that or am I not? Pharaoh did not yield. The Israelites did not yield. And most people today don't yield. And we wind up being people that are can be pretty contentious. You know, that's, Tom makes a really good point about the, the cause or the impetus behind the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Did he harden his heart because of the things that were happening, or did God somehow harden it down, coming down from heaven? And it's actually, a, a, there's some big theological implications. If God is the one causing bad things or evil or hardening and so on, and I, I know in the English we see that and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but I think the way Tom described it is a, is a much better understanding to say that it's the things that were happening around around Pharaoh that hardened his heart. And we also have to make a distinction. Let me make this distinction. What was Pharaoh's heart hardened about? Mm -hmm. And it was about letting Israel go. It doesn't say anything about accepting God and believing in God and becoming righteous through through faith in God and so on. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was actually related not to salvation, but to letting his people go. So I like to make that distinction in that passage as well. Yep. Nicely done. All right, what location in the Old Testament will you find passages and stories where God is actually happy with his people, the Israelites, and how they are living their lives and acting towards him. Mm, and Tom, the panel's there, been stumped. There, there, there may be brief, <laughs> brief moments where the people rejoiced, but the Bible says they were quick to complain and to rebel against the Lord. Um, so I see more of that in the Old Testament. I see anything else. And the Lord was always pulling them out of trouble and redirecting them. You know, there's a there's a couple passages where God 
speaks well of Israel in in this sense that they are his chosen people sure. that the, they will never cease to be a nation before me he says they are the apple of his eye i think zechariah says that he is the apple that israel is the apple of his eye uh but most of the time they're they're in hot water most of the time and uh, uh god is sending prophets after them and causing judgments to come upon them and sending them off, off to babylon because they have transgressed God's ways. So they're they're in trouble a lot. Maybe one way to understand this, and I've done a fair amount of counseling with people. I have had parents sit in my office, and they have a rebellious child, boy or girl, all kinds of problems, won't listen to them, in trouble with the law, talking back to mom and dad, stealing things. And yet, I have heard both mom and dad say, this girl, this boy is the apple of my eye. <laughs> this child is someone I love and I would lay down my life for. And I think that's what it's saying about the Lord. He doesn't condone the bad behavior because it's going to destroy us. And he wants us to be redeemed. But his love for us is beyond anything we can comprehend. You know, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is in captivity in Babylon. And they God sent them there for 70 years. And he, Daniel prays to God in recognition of why they're there. He says, therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, Daniel 9 uh, verse 11, the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you. Now, there is a smart uh, Jewish man, Daniel. He recognized that because they didn't follow the law of God, the consequences came upon them that God said would come upon them. Good word. All right. Here's another question from a listener. Thank you so much for these questions. They're they're really Interesting. Send them over, 877-933-2484. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, God the Lord is seated on his throne in heaven. The elders see the Lion of Judah, and John sees the Lamb who was slaughtered. No one can see God and live. I am troubled. Who is sitting on the throne? <laughs> That's uh, in the Old Testament. That was if you you couldn't look on the face of God and live. Now the twenty four elders, which I think in some way, it, Revelation actually doesn't say who the twenty four elders are, but I think they represent the church up in heaven. They've now been glorified. They've been through the bema judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. They have their crowns that they lay at the feet of Jesus, so they are in the presence of God. So once we are glorified we now can be in the presence of God. And we actually see that in Revelation 21-ish, verse 3, I think it is. It says of the new heaven and new earth, it says, then we, his redeemed, his glorified redeemed, uh, it says that, and now the dwelling of God is with men and he will be with his people. Ah, just an amazing way to end scripture, this plan of redemption, that we will dwell with God. God forever and ever and ever. This summer, I'm going to spend all summer teaching how to study the Bible because I see it as such an important process for us. Here's the one thing I would caution everybody to think about. When you read something in the Old Testament, do not make a law or a teaching out of it until you see what Jesus does with it in the New Testament. Because when he's, when Philip said, show us the Father and that will be enough, what did Jesus say? You've seen the Father when you've seen me. So they were already seeing the presence of the Father because Jesus is God among us. And I think that's part of a problem. We're expecting somehow, you know, that, that we, we will never see. 
we've those who believe in Jesus have already seen God, and we cannot make Jesus less than God because the New Testament is emphatic that he is the Savior and the one who saves us and the one who redeems all of us. Hmm. You know, Moses, it says, met with God as a, as one would meet with a man face yeah. to face in yeah. the tent of meetings. But then like like a half a chapter later, he says, show me God, kind of like Philip, right? And show me God. And he says, no, you can't look upon me, but I'll let my glory pass by you. And he hit him in the cleft of the rock and that whole scene. Well, then who was he meeting with? And I think the answer is Jesus, of God in the flesh. And that's called, by the way, that's called a Christophany in the Old Testament. When we have God in human or physical form in the Old Testament before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Thank you. I'm looking your way, Tom Parrish. Can you explain the difference between Orthodox, fundamental, and evangelical Christians? Orthodox Christians are very have this very strong tradition, very set way of doing worship. It's thousands of years old, and uh, they believe the longevity of it and following the fathers before them is what we should be doing in worship and adoring the Lord. Okay, you can do that. Uh, you get to fundamentalists. Fundamentalists uh, have a tendency to want to believe every word of the Bible, as we all do, but somehow, but sometimes they they struggle with putting all the Bible together when they make one statement about one verse or another. Evangelicals have their own set of problems. Hmm. I'm not going to deny that. Uh, they have a tendency to, um, how shall I say it? They have a tendency to be really uh, adept at getting people to get saved, which I'm all for. But we have done a terrible job, and I count myself an evangelical, at making disciples. And you cannot separate the getting saved from making disciples in Christianity. And so each one of them has their flaws. Um, But I wound up in the evangelical camp. Matter of fact, I did a funeral the other day, and it was at an independent church and the pastor wanted to talk to me ahead of time, and he, after he got done, he said, I've never met an evangelical Lutheran. I said, they really exist. Mm. Honest, we believe in Jesus, and we really want to emphasize that, but we need to emphasize discipleship. You know, do, do I got a minute? Yeah, of course. So, you know, you look at the, the actual definitions of all three of these words. I am an orthodox, fundamental evangelical. What do I mean by that? Well, orthodox is just kind of the traditional understanding of Christianity, that Christ died for our sins, he rose again, if you put your faith in him, you'll be saved. That's Orthodox. Now, we have Orthodox churches that that uh, may or may not believe exactly that traditional teaching. Fundamental is just that you fundamentally believe that Scripture is true. All of it is true. I believe all of Scripture is sure. true. And evangelical uh, originally came to be those, you know, quote-unquote, born-again Christians who are proclaiming Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Well, you have to be born again to see the kingdom, and we're supposed to proclaim it. Uh, so now all of them are associated with kind of branches of Christianity today. Uh, but, uh, you know, in some ways, I am an orthodox fundamental evangelical Christian. I always knew you were different, and I like it. <laughs> you, guys, you guys are different. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure I like it. <laughs> now, we'll take a break. Lots more guide talk ahead, so don't go anywhere. And send your questions over. The text line is open just for you. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back.
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Let's get back to some of your great questions. Thank you for sending them over. I've got my power panel of uh, Jeff Verdorn and Tom Parrish. So in Genesis 128, God gives Adam and Eve authority to rule over all the earth. Can you talk about the believer's authority back then and now as royal priests? What does it involve and what is its implications specifically as we pray? Oh, big question. My good one. I like it. So God did make man or did make the earth for man. I mean, everything else that he made is there to support mankind. Uh, so when he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves around the, along the ground. We are the pinnacle. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the only part of God's creation capable of being united with God spiritually uh, and to be saved. So, uh, so yeah, so he, he made this place for us. He's, the, the rest of the question was, how does that uh, impact us today on how we pray. Um, so that's an interesting question. I, you know, there's this, some Christians look uh, down upon, uh, let me be careful here, of, 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 of kind of the eco crowd that are always looking to, you know, to protect the environment and so on and so forth. We should actually very much care about our environment. Now, there's trade-offs. There's always costs with some of these things, but we should be "quote unquote" environmentalists because it's made by God for us. Therefore, we should care for it uh, and be the. We're the only ones that can steward creation, right? No other animal can steward this creation except for us. So it's a big responsibility. As far as how we should pray, um, I, I don't know that I've ever prayed for the environment. So I don't know, Tom. Have you ever prayed for the earth or the environment? Um. Not in the way that we're talking about, you know, in, in terms of wanting there to be harmony. Um, tornadoes don't hit certain, you know, hit us or things. Yeah, I, I prayed about that. What's interesting is that in Genesis one twenty eight, they have two commands. One is to fill the earth, so that means multiply, produce more people. And the other one is to subdue it. And that basically that word means take control over it. In other words, take control over the animals, the farmlands, all of that and produce a good crop and make it fruitful. You get to the New Testament, and this is where it gets interesting. The believer in Jesus Christ is called a minister of the gospel, an ambassador of the good news. And Jesus said, you know, you have my authority to cast out demons, to literally speak the truth, to literally stand up, you know, to the authorities in the proper sense. And you think about it, we have a bigger responsibility than the earth, although that's big. But we have a responsibility to speak up in this culture for the truth of Jesus, to bring him into. And I tell my congregation all the time, Jesus needs to be in those school board meetings through you. He needs to be in, you know, the public arena through you. Because how are these school boards and others with these crazy ideas going on today ever going to hear the Lord's will if Christians don't take their authority, stand for Jesus, and really be his ambassadors? Hmm. 
Nicely done. I agree. All right. What's nice. the difference between a Christophany and a Theophany? A Christophany is a specific form of a theophany. So a theophany is some manifestation of God in the Old Testament. A Christophany is specifically a manifestation of God in human form, and therefore most likely Jesus himself, the the, the manifestation of God as a man in the form of Jesus. So that's a Christophany. Good word. Nice to do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you think... Uh, in Samuel that the witch of Endor summoned was actually Samuel or a demonic apparition? I've had, well, I know this is a tough one for people. I have encountered uh, the demonic many times, and so I believe it was a real demonic encounter. And it was very much uh, against the Lord's will, and he paid a price for that. Um, I see the demonic spirits in, in situations today. Now, I don't see a demon behind every bush. I don't run around looking for that. But what I do recognize is there are patterns I can see in people that oftentimes are a result from demonic activity. And especially when I hear people, I, I've had people come into me, Bill and Jeff, and, and say to me, I've been hearing this voice for months now saying, you're worthless. You may as well end your life. You may as well get it over with. And I ask them, "How? when did that begin? begin? And basically they tell me it began when I began dabbling in this other stuff looking mm. into that spiritual realm and not really considering Jesus, but looking for power. I think I, I think in the story in Samuel, and I was just looking for it, but I couldn't find it. They, they, Saul recognizes Samuel, and Samuel recognizes Saul. So I, I think the spirit that is called up is actually uh, Samuel. So I, I think yeah. there is a—and and by the way, God says, don't play around with this stuff. He actually instructs us not to play around with this spiritual stuff in the, in the spiritual world, probably because it is possible in a way. And I think today when people call up spirits of your you know dead grandfather or have seances and stuff like that, I think in some cases it might be actually real. I think that is a possibility based on this example in, in Samuel. Two, I think it can be— demonic imposters, you know, impersonating Grandpa Fred, right? Because they've been around, they know Grandpa Fred, and they actually have the right answers. But I also think that's a possibility that these people are just frauds, and and they're using the information that they are gleaning from the person that's with them to present a case that they're they're presenting the voice of their dead relative in some way. So, but I think all of those are potentially possible. Yeah, I would just, uh, I hear what you're saying. I, I understand that. My experience is uh, these people that talk to people or they get a voice for somebody or whatever else, unless it is clearly identified as Jesus. And I tell people all the time, if you have an angel appear to you and tell you to do something, the first thing you need to do is say to that angel, will you affirm with me that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and the only way of salvation? Demons won't do that. Angels will. So that's that's kind of me for a starting point. The other thing is, if you remember the story about Lazarus, and the you know the uh, the man uh, with Abraham saying Abraham you know let me pass over or whatever and what did Abraham say in the story what did Jesus say they cannot pass over they cannot come back it's an impossible thing to do so I don't know I'm not sure the witch of Endor really had the power to bring up the Samuel but he certainly spoke in a way that we would understand Samuel to speak. And demonic, I, I was actually, I agreed with you, I was trying to expand a little bit, but I do think you're right. The demonic activity is probably the most likely of those three today, sure. especially. So, Yeah. Be careful, folks, with that kind of stuff. Be Absolutely. Very careful. Mm-hmm. So we go back to Genesis. Um, without any 
human beings other than Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel being mentioned, uh, we all of a sudden then hear about Cain knew his wife and she conceived. But just because she wasn't mentioned, uh, how do we how do we come to the understanding that uh, who's this new woman that Cain's with? Right, right. Jeff, you want to jump in? Or you want me to take it? I'm I'm <laughs> well, ready to go. I, I I think everybody who lives on earth came from Adam and Eve. I know there's lots of theories about there. There's other humanoid people that came from any number of other uh, ideas or theories, but I think scripture, not everybody born of, of Adam and Eve are listed in scripture, especially females. A lot of times they weren't listed. Um, so I think every single human being on the planet is a descendant of Adam and Eve. So, uh, so he would have married uh, his, you know, sister in some way, shape or form. Now, remember the DNA was perfect. God made DNA in those first generations. So obviously the issues that we can have today about marrying a close relative, uh, weren't an issue back then. And so that's how I see that. That's pretty much what Ken Ham said when I was down there at the Ark Encounter. And if you haven't been there, go see this Ark. This thing blows me away. It's, it's life size, but he said the very same thing you just said, Jeff. So you're Hmm. on good ground. All right. Good. Yeah, I like him. I think we've got time for one more question, and that's this. I'm looking at you, Tom Parrish, because you are a pastor of a church. Here's the question. What is considered the appropriate amount the appropriate amount of Bible verses to hear in a Sunday sermon? <laughs> Whatever it takes to communicate the Lord's will is about the best way I can put it. Now, granted, you don't want to overwhelm people. With, with scripture verses from all over the place, although there are there are passages that you can pull together to highlight it. Uh, I've taught preaching. I've done a lot of that. And one of the problems I see with most preaching is that most pastors um, will read the text, will preach from the text, but don't really seem to know where the text is going. And they need to have an end point. They need to have a target. Mm-hmm. And so when I do sermons now, I always start with an essential question. This is what we read in scripture. Here's the question we're going to try to answer today. Let's see what the Bible says about that. And then I bring in scripture to support that. Any thoughts, Jeff? Yeah, I just, I think some of the best preaching is when, if you, you're on a particular topic, you scan the scriptures to see what, where, what else does God say about this particular topic and bring those passages to bear Absolutely. in your sermon. And that yeah. kind of cross-referencing, I think, is so valuable. I've actually heard Tom, a couple of his things online, and he actually does that. He often will bring in closely related passages from elsewhere in scripture to paint a picture. So... Whoa, Kudos whoa, whoa, to you, whoa, Tom. wait, wait. He does what he says he does? <laughs> he does. <laughs> that is impressive. Thank you, gentlemen. By the grace of Jesus. <laughs> As always, it is good to hang with you guys. Uh, so thank you. And I got a really nice comment from a listener that said, I'm so glad I can work from home because I can listen to you guys, and I love you all with my liver. We so, love you, too. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I'm we'll going take, with my heart. All right, we'll take a little break. We come back. Uh, Dr. Joel Lawrence is going to come back for part two of our new friends. Same seven questions. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.